Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. Monday Night Philosophy is a series that we started almost 10 years ago here, and uh, tonight I will be speaking about a very interesting topic. How, how do you get from the biblical perspective to a philosophical perspective? Okay. So I'm taking a prophet, a biblical prophet, and say how close he came to being philosophical, because um, it's uh, not really analyzed from that point of view very often. So one of the keys I use to try to understand things, uh, both civilizationally and individually, is to analyze what people are complaining about. I think if you, you know, people always complain. That's, that's a universal. So if you look and see what people are actually complaining about, you can kind of tell what the level of a civilization is by what they're complaining about. I mean, if they're complaining about, you know, their children being dragged off to Crete and sacrificed to, to, you know, a god, that's one thing. If they're being, you know, dragged off to getting hazed in a fraternity, that's another level. Um, if they're getting, you know, dragged off to be told bad words that they'll come home with, that's yet another level, and so on and so forth. So what are you complaining about? It kind of gives away a whole lot. And now, Jeremiah, uh, the prophet that I'm talking about tonight, uh, was really a, a, quite a complainer. I mean... <laughs> He's known for this. You know, he's, he was complaining all the time. And so it really gives a good insight into what was going on in the culture. So I, I, I found that very interesting to start with. And I, I actually think, you know, I mean, the book of Job is often pointed to as the philosophical book in, in, in the Bible because it talks all about, you know, how to deal with suffering, how to deal with uh, good times, how to deal with bad times, and so on and so forth. Um, but in the end of the book of Job, what is the answer? The answer is, look, you know, Jehovah says, I'm in charge, just deal with it. You know, I mean, you just have to accept the fact I'm in charge. You will never understand anything. And so, you know, uh, submit to me. Uh, it's ironically very much like the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita is a very interesting book uh, from the third century BC or so in India. Um, it's a great poem. It's part, of, it's part of a really long poem called Mahabharata. And it's all about an, an argument between Krishna and Arjuna uh, Krishna being the god and Arjuna being uh, a, a warrior. And Arjuna is, is basically saying, you know, I, I see I'm on the battle. I'm supposed to, you know, it's my duty to, to fight. But on the other side are all my relatives, my uncles and, and, you know, and so on and so forth, and my nephews and cousins and stuff like that. I can't fight them. I, I'm not going to. And it's used as an excuse to teach yoga. So it, there's a whole, a whole you know, 100,000 words about yoga then, you know, to explain that. Um, and, and that's supposed to, you know, make Arjuna then say, okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do my duty, my dharma, and that is to go and fight even though they are my relatives. But he never really says that. He always keeps arguing, but I really don't want to. And so in the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna kind of gets fed up with all the arguments and says, uh, let, me, let me just show you who you're dealing with. And he goes, and, and then he, you know, Arjuna sees the entire universe and sees all these, uh, you know, planets and stars and everything is being swallowed by Krishna and everything. And he goes, oh, okay, that's who I'm dealing with. I'll just do what you say. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's the power argument. It's not a logical argument. And so the book of Job is a little like that. You know, a lot of religious texts are like that. They go along and, and it's a very interesting argument for a while. And then suddenly there's a big cliff and it says, just do what I say, right? So um, ironically, Jeremiah doesn't 
take that. He doesn't take that answer. He doesn't use that answer. Um, he keeps arguing right to the end. And that's why I find it interesting. I think it's also more philosophically interesting as a result than, than the other ones. Um, it's also very clear that it's from a time when we had already entered you know, history. It's, it's, if you go back 1,400 years to Abraham, it's clear that it's prehistory. We really don't have those. We kind of don't know where they started, but they started sometime between David and Jeremiah. But by the time you get to Jeremiah, I mean, he really, he dictated this book. Um, and we kind of know it was contemporaneously taken down. And it's true that there are parts that were put in later, um, like there are to some of the Gospels and stuff like that. Um, you know, people couldn't keep their, their fingers off of the original. Um, you know, everyone likes to be a good editor. Um, and they give away their editing by the way they use their words, they, uh, what they talk about and stuff like that. But there's a, a, a big, big portion of the book of Jeremiah, which is pr- fairly long. Uh, book for one of the prophets, especially. And it, it's basically the original dictation that was done at the time. It's also not organized in, in chronological order at all. There, there are events that happen here, and then you, you move back, and then you move forward. So it, it, it shows the signs of, of uh, dictation and, and uh, on-the-spot observation. So let me give you a little bit of idea about his life, Jeremiah's life first. So Jeremiah starts off uh, his book in one of the most unusual ways in the Bible, too. He says, before I was born, God knew me. That's the way he starts. Okay, what are we going to do with that one? <laughs> you know, how could you exist before, etc., etc.? That's a very interesting comment. There's very, very few things like that in the Bible. There's a comment by Jesus that, uh, that John the Baptist was maybe Elijah before, so there's some, some talk about that, but that's the only indication of any kind of prehistory to a person. You know, mostly it's, it's uh, you know, this is where we start and this is where we go. So that's an interesting little observation he threw out there. Um, the other thing is he became, a, he became a prophet when he was a teenager, basically, a, a late teenager. He complains, of course. He, that's how we find out. I'm just a youth, you know, I'm just a kid. I don't even have my beard yet. You know, uh, how, how can I be a prophet without a beard? <laughs> you know, it's not exactly stated that way, but that's my way of it. Um, but, but basically he says, I'm too young to do this. And, and Jehovah says, no, no, I, you know, I'll, I'll make you a, a adamantine wall against the people. Don't worry about it. You, know, you just, just go ahead and do it. And I'll tell you what to say. So um, he starts as a teenager. And fortunately, at the time he was a teenager, the king, Josiah, uh, was actually a monotheist. I'll just say that they, most of the time, the kings of Israel were not monotheists. Monotheists being on, on Jehovah's side. Um, a lot of them were, uh, and, I, and I'll go into this in a little bit later, uh, a lot of them were, were pagans like everybody else from the point of view of the, of the uh, Hebrews. And so he, he actually started his ministry in the 13th year of this uh, king's uh, reign in 626 BC, so that you have an idea about when this was taking place. And uh, so at least the king liked what he was doing because he went around you know, saying, you know, you, you, we really should go back to what Jehovah told us and, and you know, get this thing going again and stop all this pagan stuff that we've got going on that we've been going on for a long time. So uh, it wasn't too harsh on him when he started off. But then Josiah died, I think about 10 years in or something like that, and, and uh, Josiah's relatives that took over as kings, the next three of them, in fact, the next four of them, all, all were pagans again. Now, um, Jeremiah was treated... Not terribly badly for someone who said what he said for 40 years, <laughs> because he basically complained the whole time about how things were going. And he kept saying, you know, 
you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And I'll, I'll kind of go into his message in a, in a, in a second. Um, but, you know, somebody that's a gadfly, you know, Socrates was a gadfly. He, he wasn't very popular either. Gadflies aren't popular. No, nobody wants to hear somebody always telling you you're doing the wrong thing. Um, and that's why most kings don't ever hire people who do that. You know, they, they hire ones that say, you're brilliant. You know, you're, you're doing just great. Yeah, I know the news doesn't look like that, but if you, just, if you just look at it from a different point of view, you'll see that you're actually very brilliant. And of course, most kings buy that. They go home and they look in the mirror and they say, God, I'm so brilliant. Uh, so so this, is, you know, this is his situation. He had four kings in a row for the next 30 years. So he did this for 40 years from the time he was, say, say 18, 19 years old. It's not clear exactly. Until he's 58, 59, he basically went around telling people what they were doing wrong. So... Um, he was treated, as I said, not too badly. One time he really made somebody mad and, and that king put him in stocks. You know, it was interesting to find out they still had stocks. He put him in stocks so everybody could make fun of him. And then he, he complained, of course, to Jehovah Ashton, you, you've made me the laughing stock of, of, of the society and so on and so forth. How could you do that? And I'm suffering. And he was put in prison several times. Um, the worst was near the end uh, of, of uh, this whole period of time. Just, just to give you a little bit of history, the... the uh, for, for the context for this, the Babylonians came in and they conquered uh, three times they, over a 20-year period. So 586 was the final one. About 596 they were in, and about 2000, I mean, uh, 606 BC, they, were, they, they had come the first time. And each time they took the leadership and brought them to Babylon. So there, there were three times that they, they, they took people and took them away, but, but left somebody in charge and, and left uh, most of the people there. And I'll, I'll go into that a little bit later too. So uh, during one period of time, I mean, during the last period of time, so say around 589 or 587, during the BC, when the Babylonians were sieging, they had a siege against Jerusalem, so that now there was very little food and all that, and Jeremiah didn't change his tune at all. He, he basically told everybody, you know, the Babylonians are the ones you really are supposed to just give in to. You're, you know, he was just, he said, you're, you're not paying attention to your foreign policy. Um, you know, the, the Babylonians are going to win, you shouldn't fight them. You should just submit to their yoke, and then, then everything will be all right. Uh, this is not also a popular thing, and I'll, I'll compare it in a, in a little later. But he was put in a cistern, uh, a, a dried-up um, water uh, well, uh, with a lot of mud in it. And he was, you know, 56, 57 years old. He's lowered into the cistern up to, up to his chest or so, uh, and just left there, basically, uh, for a couple of weeks. So, as you can imagine, you know, the, the, I don't want you to imagine too, too carefully because you, you won't be able to listen to the rest of the lecture. But, you know, little animals will be eating at you, and, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive form of torture that they engaged in. So, at the end of, of, of that time, the king, who was you know, rather um, thinking that he finally could get Jeremiah to take back what he'd been saying, uh, King Zedekiah, so he has him pulled out of the cistern, and they had, to, they had to put ropes under his arms and pull him up because they hadn't fed him the whole time either because there wasn't very much food anyway. They, why, why waste any food on this guy? So he's in there somewhere between a week and two weeks, and so they pull him out. They, they hose him off, I'm sure, uh, put some clothes on him and take him to the king. And the king says, so, have you changed your tune? And Jeremiah started yelling at him again about all the things that he had done wrong. And the king just listened to this for a while and finally said, well, I'm not going to win against this guy. And he, he didn't put him back in the cistern. He put him in another place and he said, you can have bread and stuff like that. Just get him out of my sight. You know? I don't, I don't want to kill this guy because maybe, you know, maybe he knows what he's talking about or maybe he really has an in, you know, and I don't want to take that risk. It's worth a, a, a loaf of bread every day 
from the, our meager ration. So he, he got to stay where all the guards were uh, until the Babylonians actually conquered the city and took it over. Not surprisingly, the Babylonians were not mad at Jeremiah. Uh, they had heard that he was, you know, had been saying all these things though for the last 20 years. They knew all about him, so they did not get him in trouble. He got in trouble a different way. The end of his life, you know, was, was right after that, after the, the final, because at, after that one uh, in 586, the Babylonians completely razed the temple, uh, they, that's Solomon's temple. Uh, they destroyed the city. They took all the bricks off. Everything went down. Psh, boom. You know, let's get rid of this whole city so that they cannot rise again and, and do again what they did 10 years ago and 20 years ago against us. So that's, that's the situation. And Jeremiah then is done with his job. The, the Babylonians have, have won. Um, and some of the people who did not get taken to Babylon uh, escaped to Egypt because they figured next time the Babylonians come back, we'll, we'll be in trouble because, you know, we're, we're also leaders. And so it was Jeremiah's family and others that all took off to Egypt and they, against his will, took Jeremiah with them. And we then lose all track of what happened. There's lots of legends. Every single legend, all different ver- versions, but every single legend has the same ending, that is, that Jeremiah gets killed by his own you know, relatives, their own people, because they got totally sick of him. Okay? So, so this, is, this is his life, um, which he complained about because he wasn't having much fun. That was not, not a fun life. Okay, so now let me give you a little cultural context. Uh, the cultural context is, this is 626 B.C. until 586 B.C., um, so uh, people argue, uh, scholars argue about the dates and stuff like that. And I, I don't really care about the exact dates of these things. So I'm just going to hit ballpark figures. So let's just say Abraham was about 2000 BC. That's about 1400 years earlier than Jeremiah. So what was the Abraham story about? Okay. What was the Abraham story about? Jehovah comes. He's looking for, for somebody to turn into, you know, a, 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 his own people, his own civilization. And he's looking around. He's probably failed many, many times. He gives them a test and so on and so forth. And finally, he, he talks to Abraham. Abraham argues with him. Now, I always like to think that's why he picked him. You know, he said, well, somebody who was willing to argue with me, that shows a little bit of sand, a little bit of grit. So I'm, I'm going to pick him. So we know the story. Then he, he got Isaac uh, as a son in his old age and so on and so forth. Maybe not quite as old as the Bible says, but, but maybe 45. <laughs> You know, maybe, maybe, maybe Sarah was 45. That probably was pretty close to a miracle as far as everybody was concerned then, um, instead of 95, uh, when it would, you know, a lot more impressive, but m- much more painful for the poor Sarah. So, uh, so sorry. <laughs> so what happens then? Isaac comes, uh, gr- grows up, becomes a teenager, and then Jehovah says to Abraham, so I want you to sacrifice your firstborn. And that was what was going on everywhere. Everyone was sacrificing their firstborn. What did Abraham do? You know, when they made a deal 20 years earlier or so about the whole thing, Jehovah had told Abraham, you know, I don't want children's sacrifices. I don't want this kind of stuff. We're going to just have a deal. We're going to have a nice straightforward deal going on, so on and so forth. So now it looks like he's changed his mind. But of course, Abraham's a little bit cowed uh, by the fact that one's God and he's just a man. Um, and so he... He goes up to perform the sacrifice, but he complains on the way, you know, he complains, I don't really want to do this and so on and so forth. So they get up there and, you know, just before the final uh, killing of Isaac, uh, his hand is stayed by an angel and he said, here's the goat, you can use a goat instead and so on and so forth. Okay, so this story 
whether true or not true or historical or not historical, I think it, 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 it encapsulates a very important idea, which is that they're trying to stop child sacrifices, right? This was a, a civilization in which people sacrificed their children, their firstborn, but other children too, for, for wars and stuff like that. They threw them into fires in front of the gods and stuff like that. I mean, it's really, really an awful thing. Now, you know, to, to know how awful it is, the Romans stopped it. The Romans, who didn't have any problem with crucifixion, who didn't have any problem with all kinds of really cruel things, stopped the Carthaginians, stopped other societies, one after another stopped them from killing their children. Right? So this is like about as low a, a cultural thing from the point of view of ancient times as possible. And you, you, there's some historical evidence for it and stuff like that, but in Egypt it stopped about 5,000 years ago and other societies stopped. So we're talking about you know a, a, a bad cultural habit left over from ancient times that's now already seems ancient to the Babylonians who come in and take over. They also don't like this. They also think that this is, you know, what kind of group is this that we've got? They're doing child sacrifices. So to turn it around, you know, I mean, th- this was a, a, a part of it. And I always like to think about that test of Abraham and Isaac to tell him to, to sacrifice his own son, that what, what Jehovah wanted him to say was, hey, that's not our deal. Our deal is no child sacrifice. You know, if, th- if you're going to be just like all the other gods, I'm not, I'm not going with you. I'm, I'm going to stick with what I have or I'm going to come up with somebody else. And I think that that was the A-plus answer that, that Jehovah was looking for. Instead, he got a kind of B-plus answer, like, I really don't want to do this. I'll kind of do this. I'll slow down. You know, I'll go slow. I, all those other things. So he kind of got a B-plus answer and said, well, I haven't got anything better, so I guess I'll just have to go with that in an attempt to, to make this change. Ironically, of course, you know, 500 years, about 500 years later, so there was Moses, and Moses got the Ten Commandments. And the same thing happened, you know, as so Moses goes up, he's gone for, for 24 hours in the mountain, comes back down. They've already made, you know, an, another uh, god and and. and they didn't have child sacrifice right there, but there was something like that that was about to bother them. Same thing happened with David. David did his thing. That's a, maybe a thousand years, uh, you know, about year a thousand. And Solomon then made the mistake of having too many wives from other places and, and, and uh, brought all the pagan uh, things back in, including child sacrifice. Elijah. Elijah's only 250 years before Jeremiah. Elijah comes in and says, hey, you know, we really shouldn't have this child sacrifice stuff. This is an abomination. We can't, how can you be taking your children and putting them before Moloch and et cetera, et cetera? And, you know, and to show you how small the group was that was in favor of Jehovah, because we always think about it from the Bible's point of view, right? That's, that's the winning side was writing this. It seemed like they were in charge and there were these few people. But actually, you know, when Elijah took on the fight with the, with the priests of Baal, there were 450 prophets for Baal. There were 400 for Asherah who didn't show up because they were tipped off by Jezebel to not go. Um, and, and there was only one for Jehovah. So if you probably looked at it from the point of view of the whole civilization, this was a really small cult that was left. I mean, the king was kind of, you know, I'm sure that they had the history in their minds that this was part of their tradition. But this was a really small thing over to the side, the Jehovah cult. Um, and, and they had these outrageous ideas of not sacrificing children basically, among other things. You know, there's a lot of things he was down on, but this was the, the top abomination that's listed over and over again. And then, you know, 125 years later, there was Isaiah, had the same problem, now here's Jeremiah, same problem. So this is a problem that's not going away, right? So let's go to the other side of the, of the coin, which is the Phoenician culture, 
that they were in. They were, you know, they, they, the Israelites basically lived as a small group in the, right alongside the Phoenician culture, which was all along the edge. The Phoenician culture were seagoers. They built big cities. Um, they built Carthage starting in 800 BC um, uh, down the coast. They traded all over uh, the area, et cetera, et cetera. They went to war against Egypt a couple of times. Uh, it, it was a big group, a much bigger group. And, and that was the majority culture of that whole area. So basically, the Israelite tribes were just trying to be like their neighbors. Our neighbors, you know, sacrifice their children. Why can't we? They had this big argument about, about uh, Saul becoming king. We want to have a king. Jehovah says, don't, you don't need any kings. You just need prophets. You don't need kings. No, we want to have kings just like our neighbors. You know, just like we want to be just like our neighbors. Same, same idea for all that period of time. So anyway, that's the background. And the Phoenicians you know, are, are in charge and their gods are in charge and they're the ones who are influential. So now you, you look at it from the other side and you say, you're fighting against the majority culture. What if, for example, somebody here in the United States said, I really don't like that you incarcerate so many people. You know, this, you, you have the worst incarceration record of any country that's semi-civilized in, in the world. And, and uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to bring the Dalai Lama in and put him in charge of the United States and, and have him in, you know, put in Buddhist uh, principles so that we could get rid of this mass incarceration problem. Okay? It's fairly similar. It's a fairly similar idea to what was going on when Jeremiah was making this. So what did Jeremiah basically say? I mean, he, he complained a lot the way he said it, but he had several basic things that he said. He said, you guys need to be more civilized. You guys need, need to stop sacrificing your children to Moloch. It's just outrageous. It's an abomination. You need to just listen to what, you know, the Lord said. And he said, you know, follow this rule and this rule, and you will thrive. He said, he's, he doesn't want you to stop sacrificing the false gods because he's jealous. That's wrong. He's not jealous at all. He doesn't care. All he cares about is your prosperity. That's what he said over and over again. He said he never asked for any sacrifices. Anybody, Jeremiah was pretty blanket, you know, blanket statements about this. He said any prophet who ever said that in the past, that he was jealous and that, that he, he, he did this for these reasons, didn't know what they were talking about. He said he doesn't care anything about that. He never could. He said Jehovah could never have even imagined that you would sacrifice something to him. What good is that going to do him? Nothing. Boom. You know, stop it. So, so it was very, very straightforward. And there's a lot of words about how everybody's going to get punished for different things involved in all that too. But basically, that's what he was saying. So, one other perspective: Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian new king, right? Uh, young man, you know, he, he was in charge for another four years, so I assume he was fairly young when he got started. Um, and Jeremiah basically said, you know, this is the person you're supposed to submit to. This person, you know, will actually bring you civilization. You know, maybe he'll even stop you <laughs> from committing child sacrifices. So, so you should submit to Babylon. Now, the, the, the situation for the, for the uh, Hebrew uh, kingdoms was that of little, little kingdoms along the edge, that were right next to the Phoenician kingdoms, which were even bigger, that attracted the Egyptians to try to control them and, and, and also the Babylonians to fight against the Egyptians to control that. So it was a little like a small African kingdom uh, during the Cold War with the Russians and the Americans 
trying to get you to do it. And so the kings are in a tough position too. You know, I mean, not, we complain about these kings as being awful, but those kings are in a tough position because they basically got the Egyptian ambassador and the, and the Chaldean ambassador from, from Babylon telling them what they have to do in order to keep in good standing with them. So, so they're being pulled in all directions and they're not listening to Jeremiah about the, all they have to do is be virtuous and everything will be fine. They're, they're, trying, to, they're, they're trying to deal with the political situation. So Nebuchadnezzar, well, just, just an aside, my, my father loved the name Nebuchadnezzar. He just loved saying it, Nebuchadnezzar. And, and uh, we had a book, uh, Children's Book of God or something like that, with all the stories, but, you know, but, but written, you know, written out as stories instead of uh, you know, straight from the Bible. Um, and uh, so my father loved that name, but he also loved to do the booming God voice thing. I don't know if you have fathers that did that, 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 that too. Moses, Moses, listen to me. My father just loved that kind of stuff. You get 20 kids in the room and, you know. So, so this ch- the, the thing that I was thinking about that for is because this children's book of God had all these stories about how the children were thrown into the fires in front of Moloch. Now, they edited out, I and mean, this was for children, they edited out all the stuff about sex with Samson and Delilah and all that kind of stuff, of course, but they didn't edit out the, the throwing the little children into the fires to keep the gods happy. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was written by Grimm's, you know, from Grimm's Fairy Tales, something like that. But I, I think it's very interesting how that kind of editing takes place. So, um, so that's, that's an aside about my own family upbringing. <laughs> um, so one perspective on, on, on this is to see the Babylonian exile a little bit more clearly because the Babylonian exile is obviously a really big event in Jewish history. But of course, Jewish history was written by the leadership, the writers, the kings, and everything like that. So the Babylonian exile is all about all these people being taken to Babylon and how the Judaism was destroyed and so on and so forth, um, and that we lost our homeland, etc., etc. Now, there are estimates. There's, there's a direct line in, in uh, Jeremiah, I think it's in chapter 52, where he explains exactly how many people left each time. In, in, in 2000, I'm sorry, I always say 2006. In 606, uh, he said that 2,000 people were taken to Babylon. And in, and in 597, another 700 were taken. And in 586, when they raised everything, they took another 1,200 people. It, it adds up to 4,600 people that were taken. Now, we could, well, when we think about ancient times, you know, we don't have a really clear idea about the population, so we kind of think, well, it could be a town of 10,000, and if 4,000 people are taken, that's a lot of people and stuff like that. But there you know, are estimates by most scholars based upon the amount of tribute that was paid the amount of, into the Solomon's coffers, the amount of tribute that was paid into other ones, the amount of tribute that was paid to Babylon, and per head taxes, and so on and so forth, of what the population was. And there's, you know, it's an estimate based on, on, on evidence. But the estimates range from uh, both, both uh, Judea, uh, what, the, Judah, I think was called at the time, it became Judea later, Judah, and Israel, those two areas, that the total population was 300,000 to 800,000 people in those areas. 300,000 to 800,000 at least in just those two kingdoms. So it was a prosperous area. As I said, they were living right alongside very big civilizations at the time. So it's entirely possible that that's accurate. But the low end is 300,000. 
So if we take, and, and Jeremiah makes it very clear, it's 4,600 that were taken. In the book of Kings, it says 10,000 were taken one of the times. So they, it doesn't agree on the numbers. But let's just use the, the biggest estimates for numbers taken would be about 25,000. And the lowest estimate for the entire population is 300,000. So it's under 10%, even if you take both extremes. But if you take the, 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 the normal extremes or something like that, it could be under 1% of the people that were taken and sent to Babylon. And what did Jeremiah do when the people were brought to, to Babylon? He wrote him a letter, and, and he knew a couple of people were going uh, there as part of uh, uh, the, the second exile, uh, or the third exile. And so he slipped a, a letter in to be read to everybody. Well, everybody knew him because he'd been doing this for 40 years, right? He, so they got to, to Babylon, and they read this letter to everybody. And basically what he said was, settle down, enjoy yourselves, have families. You'll be here for at least two generations. You know, learn from the civilization that you're in. And please, and he, he didn't quite say it, but I, I, he almost felt like his PS was, and please learn not to sacrifice your children. <laughs> you know, because that's basically, says, and then you'll, 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 you'll come back. God's not mad at you. You know, he just, educating you, he didn't quite say that either, but that's basically the point. You know, you're just being educated to do this. And it really was the leadership that was taken. Now, obviously, conquerors at that time, they did this. You know, what they basically did was they came in and they cut off the leadership. They either killed them or they exiled them, you know, or, or you know, made them slaves or one of many different ways. But that was the way to then, and then they installed their own leadership and, and, and ran things. Not too much different than we just did in Iraq. <laughs> right? So, so, so it, it's, a, it's an age-old way of taking over a country and, 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 and influencing where it goes, even if you then don't want to, you know, manage it forever. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So that's the situation. Um, Jeremiah has now you know, written that letter. He's, he's freed by the Babylonians. They don't, they don't care what he does. He can, he's, he's invited to come to Babylon. He's invited to do whatever he wants to. Um, his relatives steal him and take him to Egypt. But what was he arguing with God about near the end? Very interestingly, he had several arguments, all of which lead to uh, the, the conclusion that I, I started with. He was very philosophically interested in, in something. First, one of his arguments was, you know this prophesying stuff that we do? I'm not fond of it. It's, 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 it's intellectually inaccurate. It's, it's, not, it's not really honest. It's not really honest what we're doing. Like, for example, he said, you know, there's, there's this story in there that Jeremiah was in prison near the end, and the whole country was falling apart, and there was a right uh, that you had, uh, sort of like a right of first refusal today in, in, in business, that if your relative had to sell his land, you had a right of first refusal if you were a relative to buy the land so you could keep it in the family. They had much stricter rules 400, 500 years earlier, but this is what it had come to. They were trying to keep the same families owning the same plots of land for a long time, and obviously that just can't be done over time. So it was attenuated, but even so, a relative always had the right to buy a property. And so uh, Jeremiah is in prison, and uh, he gets a message from God saying, your cousin is going to come, um, and, and want to sell his land to you, and I want you to buy it. And, and Jeremiah 
basically says, uh, what am I going to buy it with? You know, <laughs> well, 17 silver shekels, here they are. Somehow he got 17 silver shekels to him. And he said, okay. And the reason for it was to give people confidence in the future when everything was falling apart, that Jeremiah was still buying land or, you know, in spite of the fact that the Babylonians were running over everything. So that was one of the things that, that he had him do. But, you know, but Jeremiah basically was saying to him, nice trick, you know, it's a nice uh, story and it will impress people and stuff like that. But, you know, you only know this because you know it. My cousin, he's on his way. You know he's on his way. You're God. So, so me being able to say that my cousin is on his way to sell me his land and all the, all the soldiers will be shocked uh, is, is not kind of dishonest because you already know this. The same thing with, with Nebuchadnezzar. You know that Nebuchadnezzar had a bigger army than the Egyptians, or was it better at this than the Egyptians, and they were going to win, and therefore that we should side with them. So predicting that Nebuchadnezzar was going to win was a pretty safe bet to make. So he argues, he complains about those kind of things. You don't see that too often among a prophet and his, and his uh, thing. So that's one of the things. The other thing he, he, he complained about was, we have been trying to get rid of child sacrifices for now. How long? 1,400 years. How are we doing? Not very well. Maybe our method isn't very effective. <laughs> you know, maybe we should try something else instead of scaring the people half to death with the punishments that you're going to be giving and so on and so forth. Um, and so he, he argued about that. Um, another couple of things he said, which are rarely focused on. This is just complaints that he made, side complaints, but that, well, if you haven't read them, they'll shock you a little bit. One of the things somebody was complaining early on in his career, when he was young, maybe because he was maybe a little bit even more um, uh, not respectful as a young man, but somebody was saying, you know, if, if this happens, you know, the Ark of the Covenant could be lost. And he said, the Ark of the Covenant is irrelevant. Who, who cares? No, if, it, if it disappears, nobody will even know. And, you know, and this was like the important thing in, in, that they held. That was their one big ritual thing. So he, was, he d- just totally dismissed it. You know, and he, he dismissed other things. Like he said, you know, Holocaust. He said, you know, people said, well, which kind of sacrifices should we do? And he, he just said, point blank. He never asked for any Holocaust. He never asked for any sacrifices. He just wants you to prosper by listening to what he says. He's giving you good advice. He wants you to listen to his good advice, and you will prosper. It's not for him. It's for you. That's what he kept saying. You know, and he's not the only one that ever said that. You know, uh, Jesus said pretty much the same thing, and uh, other ones have said that, but it, it's, it's a minor chord among all the other things in, in the thing. But it basically is saying, you know, this is for you, it's not for me. Uh, stop worrying about me and making me happy. Listen to my advice and you'll do better, basically. So, so he, he complained, he said, when the people asked him what kind of Holocaust, he said, just stop it. You know, there's no reason for any of those things. He doesn't care anything about them. He wasn't even, like, shy about saying it which he probably should have been. On the other hand, he also complained to Jehovah and, uh, and about Jehovah, to Jehovah. He said, you know, you're, you're like a treacherous brook. That was one of his images. You're like a treacherous brook. I can't trust you. You have completely duped me into doing this when it doesn't work. You know? And he, he said a few other choice things like that to him too. And then he said a lot of nice things too. But, you know, when he was down and he complained, you, you get a little insight into how he felt. So that's some of his arguments. The, the, the argument about um, the child sacrifices and so on and so forth. But when it gets down to it, you, you, know, you look at it and you say, so what did he say positively, Jeremiah? He's very famous for what's called the new covenant. He predicts that there will be a new covenant. 
Okay? And, and the Christians uh, use this to say, see, this was a precursor or a prophecy of Christ coming. And the New Covenant, but uh, they didn't read it very carefully. Uh, because the New Covenant basically says, you know, it's a, and, and it's also clear that Jeremiah dreamt up this New Covenant in a dream, in a, in a real dream. Because he says right in there that I, I woke up uh, feeling very refreshed from this dream. And this is what the Lord said in it. Um, and he says, basically, uh, there will come a time, doesn't say when, there will come a time when I will forget all this stuff about you sinning. And I will, will make a new covenant with you. We'll forget the entire old covenant. He doesn't say which didn't seem to work, but you know, that's basically part of it, uh, which, which never worked. Um, and I will forget about your sins. I will forgive all your sins and I won't pay any attention to your sins anymore and that's not going to be what it is. You'll just know me in your heart and that's all we need to do. That's all we need to do, basically. And it's, it's really like the argument of saying, you know, uh, is, you, could, you could probably hear, you know, Jeremiah and Jehovah talking and Jeremiah saying, you know, 1,400 years, we haven't gotten anywhere with this child sacrifice thing. You know, so all that punishment stuff, uh, it doesn't really seem to be doing any dentistry. Maybe if we just charm the people and say we're going to love them no matter what they do, you know, and that they don't need any sacrifices. But if they want to sacrifice, it's okay. You just, you, we just, just say, I'm in your heart and I love you and you're just fine. Just like, like sort of uh, not tough love, but, you know, the kind of totally lenient parental love, you know. Then, then will, you know, will we do better? Maybe we'll do better. Maybe child sacrifice will go away. Of course, you know, that's not what stopped child sacrifice. The Romans did. So, uh, but, but you, could, you could hear that echoing in the New Covenant language. And the interesting thing about it is sin, see, so I, I won't pay any attention to sin. Sin is like a worthless concept. Sin is the concept of obedience to God. If you obey God, you don't sin. If you don't obey God, you're sinning. Now, we have free will, which is all part of the story. So, so you have to use that free will to obey a different will. That's the whole purpose of it. Um, if you use it for your own purposes, you're sinning, basically. And if you use it for what I tell you to do, you're not. Now, that's a, that's a clever way to get people to do what you want. You know? But it doesn't make a lot of logical sense. Why did you give them the free will in the first place? Because if you only wanted them to do exactly what you said, there was no point in letting them make a choice, right? Because you know for a fact, as soon as you forbid something, you know, people are 10 times as interested in doing it as they were before you forbid it. So, so that's... That's what he's basically saying. No sin, no obedience, no, no organized religion. He says in, in this new covenant, you won't have to tell each other anything about the Lord as we do now. Everybody will know who he is because he loves everybody and he'll be in everybody's heart. So basically the new covenant is no religion and total leniency on the part of whoever Jehovah is to everybody. Um, and that, that is a switch from punishment and, and obedience and the authoritarian approach, which is what the religious approach had been for, forever there. You can, you can kind of feel what the authoritarian religious approach is. It's, it's an authoritarian attitude that says we are going to inspire virtue in other people by inspiring intimidation, basically. You know? We're going to try to get them to be virtuous by inspiring intimidation. And what is the philosophical attitude? I'll explain what's in your own self-interest. I'm friendly towards you. I want you to have a happy life. Um, and if I explain it clearly enough and persuasively enough, I'll, I'll persuade you. But I've, 
I am philosophical enough to know that you probably won't change your mind on most things because I've been watching for thousands of years. And so basically you can keep on going how you want to and we're not going to fight anymore about it, but we're going to try to explain things ever more persuasively so that maybe more and more people will start to do the things we think will make you happier. And the interesting part about that whole thing when I analyze it from another point of view is that the missing piece is right there in obedience. See, because if you, if you teach obedience, then people will do the virtuous acts, but they will do it for the wrong reason. And if they do it for the wrong reason, then their experience will not be of pleasure. It will only be the pleasure of obeying, which is a slave's pleasure. And not too many people like slave's pleasure, so they're always trying to get out of it. So what was a, the missing piece in this whole thing, or the, or the inaccurate piece in trying to adjust people, was if virtue is enjoyable all by itself, people should just do it. But people aren't aware of what virtue is because we've obfuscated it by saying virtue is obeying what I have to say, which is to do virtuous things in a way. But in the meantime, you're not really experiencing what, I, what Jehovah is and Jeremiah and the other ones are experiencing about the virtue. That is, it's enjoyable all by itself. And so the final conclusion about Jeremiah's uh, new covenant is that obedience is not a virtue, but obedience is a sin. Obedience is a vice. It gets in the way of your own happiness. And this is the this is the the, the, the basis of the New Covenant, which is kind of ironic then that, that it's picked up and used by a totally new set of rules um, because, and, and even more obedience than before because that's almost exactly the opposite of the intent or the, the message. But you know, that's, that's not new. <laughs> so I think if you, if you look at it from that point of view, you see what, what Jeremiah was aiming at and what the arguments were about and everything like that. And you can see he's kind of right on the cusp of taking a very philosophical attitude uh, towards the improvement of the human race. Uh, and, and that's in 586 B.C. And, and uh, in, in, you know, within 15 years, or within about 50 years or so, this uh, flowering in Greece took place, where, where uh, all this rational idea about how to go about exactly that project uh, got going, uh, at least got revved up. So it was probably something in you know, the time. I mean, people have talked about that time when... Uh, people had a lot of new ideas and stuff like that. And I thought it was very interesting that, that he had a sliver of this idea and it, it caused him a great deal of personal distress. Um, but it was intellectually very interesting. That's what I'd say about we can take questions. I suppose first I should apologize in case someone thought I was going to give a, like a, a, a straight biblical story about Jeremiah. Anybody want to have a question? Sure. I found that very interesting, but I think in its own way that's a a Christian interpretation of Jeremiah, God's Mm -hmm. love, and that um, there there is a kind – if you look at the very early Christianity, in fact, that's still in Jesus' time, for what we know of it, that there is this idea that uh, we can break down the the social structure, we break down the, the organization which, of course, everybody following Jesus then picked, up, picked right up again. Uh, I, I'm personally, I, well, I think I'm generally taking the Jewish perspective and I look at it a little bit differently. I see Jeremiah shifting from the communal responsibility where mm-hmm. the people as a whole suffered when the people sinned mm-hmm. or the, the, that God punished Jerusalem because of Manasseh 60 years earlier, and he said right. so at several points. And um, particularly when they were shifting, the, God was punishing Israel for idolatry. Mm-hmm. And now 
we're starting to see personal responsibility. And Jeremiah actually, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, quote the the line that uh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Right. And he says this won't happen anymore. What I think both prophets are doing in their own way is trying to say we're moving to individual responsibility now. I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's it's much more. Uh, I I have a feeling in, in putting it forward that this new covenant dream that Jeremiah had was much more more Jeremiah's complaining argument uh, than it was Jehovah's decision. Um, and so, uh, but I I do think that's absolutely right about the personal responsibility. In fact, what he said in a couple of places, yes, I'm punishing you, but it's only to make you better. Um, and, and speaking for Je- Jehovah, and he said, I'll punish you for two generations, but I will reward you for a thousand. You know, he said a few other things like that. So it was, it was like uh, more leniency. But you're, you're absolutely right in that the, 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 this um, movement towards personal responsibility versus uh, group responsibility was a really big shift that, that uh, Jeremiah was part of, too. Uh, I, I didn't go into it, but I, I should have, actually, because that's a really a really big issue that was on his mind, too. Any other questions? Yeah. But I, I'm curious, you've, you've, you've mentioned so often about the uh, child sacrifice, yeah. uh, that the Jews were practicing child sacrifice. Where is the documentary evidence to support that? Okay, uh, very good question, and uh, a lot of scholars argue about that, that it's mythological or sometimes said that it was just, um, you know, like when one group doesn't like another group, they say really bad things about them. Um, but it's very clear uh, from what the scholarly work is. First of all, it's mentioned a lot of times as, as the issue in the Bible at many, many different periods of time. And in, uh, from outside of the biblical area, Carthage uh, is known as being part of the same culture, and they have found urns, 20,000 urns with the remains of children, uh, babies for first month or second month, and so on, that shows that they, uh, and, and shows some ritual uh, destruction or whatever, um, that they, they said that's pretty clear evidence that something was going on, because everybody wrote about it. I mean, uh, different uh, Roman scholars, different Greek scholars, uh, historians at the time, wrote that the Carthaginians did it. So, it, and it was the same gods, um, the same, the Carthaginians had the same gods as the ones in the, that the Canaanites had at the time. And so they, they were part of the same Phoenician culture, um, Baal, Asherah, and so on and so forth, Asherah. So um, there's a lot of evidence that it probably was true. And of course, we know from other parts of history that there are plenty of human sacrifices that actually happened. But whether the Jews themselves were doing it, I think there's no way to know whether that's true or not except for the, that their prophets complained about it all the time. And they, they really weren't... I, I think it's much safer to say that the, if, if you say that the Jews are the people who actually believed in what uh, Jehovah had said, and the other people were the people who lived there who were not cooperating with that and were, or, were uh, sacrificing to the other gods, that, that might be a dividing line uh, for it, but basically... Yeah, well, I, 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 I'm very aware of the Carthaginian because uh, I, I've seen that stuff in, uh, in, in, in Tunis, in, the, in, in their museums. Mm-hmm. You can see all that. But it seems to me that you've taken a very large leap to associate that with the Israelites. Ah, well, I think that there's, uh, I mean, there's, no, there's no archaeological evidence. They say that, that uh, uh, for example... Um, in Jeremiah, at the beginning, he says, you know, 
he uses the word, I don't know how to pronounce it, T-O-P-H-E-T-H, Topeth or something like that. that. And that was the name that the Phoenicians used for child sacrifice locations. And the same name was used in Carthage um, years later and for, for where they had child sacrifices. And that name was used and said, you know, that this is something uh, that needs to be done. How can, you, how can you take your children to that location and sacrifice them? Um, so, but but uh, those, those um, sites were all totally destroyed later on. And so uh, I think there is no archaeological evidence of them. So all we have is the, the record of all the complaining. Uh, but as I said before, you, you, when, you, when you look at the complaints, you kind of know what people are upset about. Um, it's also true that there are plenty of complaints that have been made, f- one group over another, uh, you know, that, that you use children for this or you use children for in your uh, satanic rituals and all that kind of stuff, which are not accurate. So it's very hard to tell, very hard to tell. But it is, it is a theme that goes s- straight through the... The, the biblical stories. But, but I think you'll admit that what you're telling me is that there's no logical connection. No, I wouldn't admit that. No logical connection between the child sacrifices and what they were saying? Or no logical connection between what? Between, uh, well, you, you, you've asserted that the Jews were practicing child sacrifice. Yeah. And what I'm saying is that there is no logical connection to, to make that association. No, no logical connection? So would you like to say something about that? I think uh, George's point is you don't complain about something that isn't happening. Now, maybe it's happening to your neighbors, and maybe it's happening to people you don't like. Certainly, uh, the books of kings, for example, are written uh, by the house of David, and so they have nothing at all nice to say about the kings of Israel. If you look at the archaeological evidence, King Omri was a very powerful king, and some of the other kings were also. But if you're complaining about Tophet, is the pronunciation, if you're complaining about Tophet, there's a reason for it. And I'm not actually familiar with the details that you've brought up, Mm -hmm. but I can see why, if you're saying something over and over, don't do this, somebody's doing it. Mm. Yeah. So, but there's no, there's no, um, archaeological evidence that I know about other than the Carthaginian evidence, uh, which is the same culture. And of course, that's, that's of, for the same gods. Um, there's a lot of archaeological evidence for child sacrifice in other religions at other times, from earlier times and from other places, all around the world. Yeah. But, but the Jews were not... Were not the, the Jews had nothing to do with those gods. I mean, your, 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 your logic escapes me. Yeah. Uh, well, the Jews... The, the whole point of the, of the prophets was to try to make the Jews come back to their god and to, to stop sacrificing to the pagan gods. So you have to completely discount all the stories that are told like that to say that it has nothing to do with the Jews. That's all right. You know, if all the stories are, are thrown out, that's okay. But that's, what, that's like a, a theme through the whole thing. It's like, it's like eliminating Voldemort from the Harry Potter stories. You know, I mean, it, 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 really is, it really is the main thing that, that keeps coming up over and over again. Don't do this one thing. You, you, you don't do adultery. Don't do other things and stuff like that. But the worst thing, the worst abomination said over and over again is, is child sacrifice. And it, it could be, you could argue, that they're talking about what's going on in another country, some far place and far away and stuff like that. But there wouldn't be the intensity, I think, of having to keep coming back to that topic all the time if you're arguing about something your neighbors are doing. So logical isn't, I, I, I agree that there's no logical necessity for it. Um, but I think it's fairly reliable evidence the way it's told. 
Yeah. Um, if I could come back to uh, your point, if I understand what you're saying, Jeremiah was trying was observing that most people were looking at their religious life externally, mm-hmm. stuff to do and make, and he was trying to get people to see it. Really, I mean, what you're saying about uh, the community from the in- or the from the going from the communal to the individual could also be just the way people focus in their own understanding of what they're supposed to do. That is to say. Um, do stuff externally or focus on their inner life. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to get people to focus on their inner life. Is that correct? One thing. Mm-hmm. So two things. One, is that correct? And if it is, he also must have known that they weren't going to hear him or understand him very well. And what do you think his response was to that? Well, I think frustration was his response. And and, and I, I and he's very clear that he's, he's a frustrated prophet. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, and I, I think you're, you're, you're right that he did focus on that. Um, but that's not all he focused on, because a lot of his prophecy was, you know, if you don't do this, uh, this tribe will, will get in. One of the interesting things, uh, I mean, this tribe will come in and take over, and so on and so forth. One of the interesting things about Jeremiah, which is unusual, too, is that he, he prophesies the doom of the Moabites and the Edomites and the other groups all around the, the, the Jewish uh, religion. And he feels sorry for all the things that they're going to suffer, too. Um, so he takes he takes their suffering into account. And, um, you know, just to go back to, to, to your argument uh, here just a little bit, um, you, can, you can learn a lot about a culture, as I said, by what they complain about, but also what they brag about. Okay? And, and when, when the story of Joshua, which is very hard to believe from a historical point of view, but as a cultural standpoint, coming into Jericho and being told that you have to kill every single man, woman, and child, and animal in that city to take it over and to make it for, for yourself. That, and, and, and to brag, see how well we did this. You know, that's certainly in the story, and you can discount that story. But there's another one in Elijah. For, I mean, there's lots of them like this. But Elijah, to try to get the, peop- the Jewish people back to Jehovah and away from Baal, um, he had a contest and said, you know, at first he said, I will withhold the rain. You know, Jehovah will help me withhold the rain, right? This is the story. So, no, I'm not saying that this is a historically accurate story. I'm just saying this is the story as it's told. He said, I will withhold the rain until you come back to me. So there's a drought. Whether he said it at the beginning of the drought or at the end of the drought, who knows? But there's a drought. And he says, "I I will prove that my God is powerful and yours are nothing but idols that, that, you know, why should you worry about him? And so the priests of Baal all came to, to have a contest with, with Elijah. And Elijah was the only one there. And they built their altars. And, he, and, and Elijah said, bring down fire from heaven to consume the, 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 the offering, the sacrifice. Okay? And the 450 priests of Baal did whatever they could for a while until they gave up. And they never got fire. And, and Jehovah, I mean, Elijah said one thing. And the fire came down and consumed the whole thing, including the stones, which is bragging. Uh, you know, that the, that the stones were also consumed in the fire. And, and then, you know, uh, he, he gave the order. So he, he proved his point, and then the rain started. And he proved his point and said, now we're going to slaughter all, all the priests of Baal. And every 450 of them had their throats slit. I mean, this is a different period of time. Um, and those are the heroes. So what, the, what the, the enemies are doing could easily be worse than what the heroes are doing, one would hope. So I don't, I don't think it's that far-fetched, especially given other ancient history. If you, if you come to the Americas, Aztecs, the Incas, they, they certainly did these human sacrifices right up until 500 years ago, 600 years ago.
By the way, I, this is an aside, but, but uh, I thought this is the height of political correctness uh, that I've ever heard. It was, a, it was a National Geographic or an NPR story about the Aztecs, and it was talking about the, the uh, um, temples, and it, and it was show, it was a, a video, so it was showing, and it said, and these, these pathways um, down the side of the temple were to carry the sacred liquids that were created during, <laughs> during, during, the, uh, during, during the sacrifices to their god, um, and shows how in tune they were with nature, and they didn't say anything about human sacrifice or that it was for blood. Which, which I thought, interesting. You know, it's true that nature is very bloodthirsty, but I don't really think that the way of describing it is that this is our way to be in tune with nature. Because if we're going back there again, we won't have a population problem in no time at all. Yes, a question? I'd like to change the, the topic just a bit. Uh, Jeremiah is uh, arguing during the whole period when um, Judea, Judah at this point is an ass, a... Um, um, subject king of Babylonians, and they're thinking about shifting over to the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. You comment on Jeremiah's political uh, ideas about how they should submit to the Babylonians and be safe that way. Yeah. So this is why it was very unpopular because the, the, the you know there was always the argument shouldn't we go with the Egyptians versus the thing and and basically as I said you know if you were an African kingdom in the Soviet Union in the, in the United States were doing you're, you're being pulled from both sides and that was their situation and he he was so adamant that they should give in to the Babylonians that he, he put a yoke, like a, a bull's uh, yoke, on his neck, walked around all the time saying, submit to the yoke of Babylon. You know, how about that for being dramatic? Uh, so he, he, he never had any other say, no, don't, the Egyptians are not going to win. Don't mess, you, the more you mess around with the Egyptians, the worse it's going to be for you. And, and uh, when, when uh, the last king Zedekiah uh, messed around with the Egyptians again, Jeremiah basically said to him, the, the, the Babylonians are going to come, they're going to kill you, they're, they're going to get rid of your family, um, and, and that will be the end of, of, of uh, Jerusalem. So he was, you know, either had inside information or he was a good extrapolator. You know, so, yeah. It's ironic that King Josiah was killed by the Pharaoh when he went to renew his, his vow of allegiance to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And could have could have saved himself a lot of trouble by keeping him in place because he was one of the better, you know, ones for moving it forward. But in any case, you know, it, it, it's, it's nice to take these difficult situations and the stories that you hear and, and, and know you're, they're all from one point of view and then to put it into a political context and say these, the two big players were the Egyptians and, and, the, and the Babylonians and this was a, a, a small little kingdom, very interesting to us, but a small little kingdom in which everything happened. One more question or enough? Okay. You mentioned obedience is a vice. Yeah. In terms of obeying externally a law yeah. versus the internal you know, covenant of the heart. So was Jeremiah's new covenant internal and not institutional, no rituals, totally individual, a matter of the heart, where you voluntarily obey, not because it's a law, but because your heart says, yes, I want to obey. That's, that's basically... What, what he said, yeah, that's basically the new covenant and uh, that he, he proposed. I mean, it's very short, but that's, that's the basic idea. And, uh, you know, there's a difference between voluntary cooperation and obedience. Obedience is something you do because you have a duty or you have a rule, some, something that makes you do it without thinking that it would be good for you, except for that it won't be bad for you because it'll be bad for you if you don't obey, basically. Um, so, so there, there's a different motive, and when there's a different motive, your motives are actually your real desires, right? 
Because if you, if you think about, you're, you're, you're trying to fulfill desires. When you fulfill a desire, you get happiness. When you, when you fail to fulfill a desire, you get misery. And so, uh, if you, uh, but the quality of those desires shifts uh, from one thing to another. So there's a wide range of quality to those desires. But the interesting thing is almost all those desires that we have are really just run by our motives. Why do we do what we do? And those are our real desires. You know, like not too many people would want a yacht just because they want to have a yacht to show up on every once in a while with 50 people that, that they hire full time and stuff like that. But there's something that goes with that, which is everybody else knows you're totally loaded. Um, and, and, and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for everybody else to look at you and say, I'm totally loaded. There's all kinds of people who, who uh, pick a spouse or a partner that they pick them not for their personality or for how they get along with them. They pick them because when they walk down the street, they think everybody will be jealous of them for, for being with that person. No matter how miserable the experience is at home, it's, <laughs> it's made up for when you're walking down the street. You know? And so, so it's, it's, it's really an interesting idea how, how those motives in our head uh, drive our decisions, drive our decisions. And when you get what you want, but it doesn't work, like you want to do something to uh, embarrass your neighbor or to outdo your neighbor, and you do it, and you're absolutely delighted all the way home thinking, ah, see, I have a, I have a Mercedes, and, and, and you know, he's only got a Toyota, and I'm gonna, he's going to be so upset with, you know, that I, I'm so happy and so on. And then you drive by, and you see that he's got a new BMW in, your, in, his, in his thing, and you say, uh-oh, what's better, Mercedes or BMW? And, and it ruins your whole game. I mean, you've got the car you wanted, but your happiness disappears just like that, right? Because what was the real desire? The real desire had almost nothing to do with the car. I mean, usually, usually all of our desires are very complex. There, there, there's these actual facts, plus there are all these different motives. And, and almost no desire can be completely satisfied because the motives conflict with each other a little bit. And the thing. So that's why when we see children play, we see this kind of pure joy, that pure happiness, because it's, they just are having fun to have fun. And so there's no complications, and all their motives are being taken care of. Everything is just fulfilled, and they're having a good time, and so they're happy. That happiness is really a lot of fun to watch. And you, you, you see it not just with children, but with other people in different situations where it's really just their uncomplicated un pleasure in what they're doing, and that's what we all want, you know. So, you know, it, it, that's why it looks so appealing. But it really is just the fact that the motives are all lined up and they don't disagree with each other at all and the, the, the desire is simple and it's done and therefore it creates a certain kind of joy. Um, just, just a little idea about that quality and that is, you know, laughter shows our quality, the quality of the emotions very nicely. So when you hear somebody laugh, we're, we're all in here in this room. If we heard a couple people laugh out there at a joke, you could all tell if it was a dirty joke. You could all tell if it was a cruel joke. You could all tell if the witches were out there, you know, cackling. You know, I mean, that, that, that's what, witches cackling, that's a totally different kind of laughter. And, and each of those qualities, or, or if it's children laughing about even something simple, you know, like little potty jokes or something like that, but they just think it's the funniest thing in the world and they don't really care and they haven't learned to be embarrassed about it yet and everything. And that's their laughter. So you, you hear that laughter, and that, that to me is one of the, the, the clear signs that there's this different quality. It's all, it's all enjoyment, but there's a different quality to all the different enjoyment based upon the motives that are involved and what's, what's involved. That's a totally different topic, which we will not start at this point. <laughs> okay, thank you very, very much for coming. 
So ends another event in the 117th year of Enlightened Discussion at the Commonwealth Club.